1: Today's guest is Dr. Robin Chutkin. She's an integrative gastroenterologist at Georgetown Hospital, the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness, and the best-selling author of Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, and The Bloat Cure. Hi, Robin. How are you? Great.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today.
1: So one of the biggest things I hear from my patients is about their digestive problems, from bloating and constipation to serious inflammation and damage to the gut. So before we get to what can go wrong, I'd love to start with how things look when everything's going really smoothly. So can you walk me through what you think about when you hear the words gut help?
2: Gut health really is overall health. So think about where your gut is located. It is literally in the center of your body. And when we think about the main role of the digestive tract, it's to digest food, to absorb the nutrients from the food, and then to distribute those nutrients to the rest of your body. So your gut provides the fuel for all your bodily functions, for your brain, for your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your muscles, etc. It, it's like the gas tank of the car. And we all know that if you have an empty gas tank, your car is not going anywhere. Gut health is physically and physiologically central to our overall.
1: Tell us a little bit about how the microbiome fits in. That we're, that's a term that we're hearing a lot more. Patients are asking a lot more about it. What is the microbiome and how does that fit in with digestion?
2: So the microbiome refers to the collection of all the organisms, the bacteria, the viruses, fungal organisms, parasites that live in and on our bodies. And they live mostly in our gut. So we have about a hundred trillion organisms basically cohabitating with us. And of course you can't see any of them because they're microscopic, but if you scraped up all the microbes that live in our body, and again, mostly in our GI tract, they would weigh about four pounds. And the really interesting thing about the microbiome Neha is that it is a more unique identifier of us than our own DNA because the microbes that we cultivate reflect everything about us, where we've lived, what we've eaten, medications we've taken, the environment we've been exposed to. So it is very unique and personalized to us. I think most of us are are sort of hip to the idea that not all bacteria are bad and that in fact, we can't live without bacteria, that they're essential for a lot of our bodily functions. So, you know, when we think about the microbiome, I, I like to think about it as worker bees So we are like a hive where, you know, a hive is an inanimate object. It's just sort of a frame that's sitting there. But what brings the hive to life and creates the honey are all the bees. So our microbes are our worker bees. And they're the ones that are actually doing the work. They're digesting the food. They're synthesizing the vitamins and the hormones. They're training our immune system. They're even turning genes on and off. So I think I like that picture of this sort of, you know, worker bees animating our hive. And if you think of the honey as basically our bodily functions, that's how it all works.
1: Well, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And So you mentioned the immune system. So beyond digestion, how do these microbes and the, the organisms that make up our microbiome help us with our immune system?
2: Yeah, so 70% of our immune system is actually located in our gut. And what that looks like is, you know, another really interesting concept is to realize that when things are in our digestive system, they're not actually in our body. They're in this hollow tube that runs from our mouth to our anus, about 30 feet long that is our intestinal tract. So it's the, the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, the first part of the small intestine, the duodenum, the middle part, the jejunum, the end part, the ileum, and then that hooks on to the colon, sometimes known as a large intestine, and things exit. So that's your sort of quick tour through the GI tract. But when you eat food and it's in your GI tract. It's getting churned up and and processed by digestive enzymes. And then there's a selection process to decide what particles, what nutrients, are able to flow through your digestive membrane, which is just a one-cell thick lining with little holes in it, like pores in a fishing net. And so certain substances go through the net, get into the bloodstream, get carried to different cells and different parts of the body for energy. That's a fuel that we talked about earlier. And so on one side of that very thin net, and again, we're talking about one cell thick, so a razor's edge, on one side, you have the products of digestion and you have the trillions of microbes. And just on the other side, you have all the immune cells, the T cells and the B cells and the plasma cells making antibodies. So that that barrier between literally your physical immune system And your trillions of microbes is one cell thick. And as you can imagine, Nehab, there's constant interaction between the two sides. In fact, our microbiome is actually guiding and modulating our immune system. So if you don't have a healthy complement of gut bacteria, and if they're not making the necessary metabolites to instruct the immune system, you're not going to have a healthy immune response. You're going to have an overactive immune response, or you're going to have an underactive immune response. And unfortunately, we've seen that with this pandemic, with a lot of the people who've had poor outcomes, a lot of it can be traced back to gut health. There was a a really interesting landmark study that came out last year that showed that the health of the microbiome and the composition can predict outcome from COVID with 92% accuracy, which is astounding. That's way more accurate than looking at age and comorbidities like heart disease, et cetera, just by looking at the microbiome and particularly by looking at the levels of certain bacteria that we know are associated with a healthier immune system versus not.
1: So I think there's so many interesting things you said there. So I want to First, point out that picture that you painted of what we normally think of as our healthy gut, which is just this tube, this sort of closed tube. And what you're really helping us see is that it's really more of a net and that everything that is going in through our mouths until it comes out has really easy access to the rest of our system and i love the image of of the worker bees but you know what you're saying makes them also seem like guardians too they're like guards pro- protecting us from having maybe some dangerous things enter into our our bloodstream
2: absolutely i like to think i love your guards analogy i i sometimes say they're like the bouncers at the club And they have to keep the drunken disorderly out. So they're like, okay, you can come in. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Oh, you know, out you go. Like, you're definitely not coming in here. So yeah, so they help to maintain the selective permeability of the fishing net of our gut lining. And that's really important because if we know if the drunken disorderly get into the club, they're going to, it's going to be mayhem.
1: I love that. So how did you get interested in these bouncers? How did that become sort of your uh, your path and, and the research that you're doing and your work that you're focusing on?
2: I really do love gastroenterology. And I love this, this niche that I sort of carved out around autoimmune diseases and the microbiome. And I, I find that it has so much intersectionality with other fields, you know, with brain health and with immune health and even with heart health, And then I had a more personal connection really to this area of the microbiome with my daughter, Sydney, who was born 17 years ago. I was a healthy woman when I had her. I was 39. So that's what, you know, they call advanced maternal age, but very healthy, no medical conditions. And I did happen to have the flu when she was born. And that resulted in them giving me antibiotics prophylactically. It resulted in them putting her in the NICU, the neonatal ICU even though she was fine, but just again, preventatively, you know, mom has a fever. We'll just watch her. They ended up giving her a lot of intravenous antibiotics, again, just in case because mom has a fever. She was a C-section baby, a- and all of those things at the time. Neha, I I just thought, oh, this is great. You know, they're being so proactive. Modern medicine at work. And to be clear, it is great that we have neonatal ICUs and antibiotics and all these things for people who really need them. But the unfortunate fact is she didn't really need all of this. She was a healthy baby. And those antibiotics early on wiped out a lot of her microbiome. So there are things that I know now that it's sort of amazing to me, I didn't know back then, but it really speaks to how much we know about the importance of the microbiome. So 17 years ago, none of us in the medical profession, or at least very few of us, appreciated the difference between a baby born vaginally and a baby born via C-section. Babies born via C-section, as my daughter was, are colonized with hospital-acquired staff instead of the healthy microbes from the mom. And what that means is that they have higher rates of autoimmune diseases, of allergies, of asthma, and even obesity in the years after they're born. And then getting antibiotics at birth, you know, wipes out so much of that early microbiome.
1: When someone comes to your office... With symptoms of digestive problems from bloating, gas, to weight loss, what are some of the other types of symptoms that people should be looking out for that could be suggesting a problem with with their their gut health?
2: Coming back to this interconnectedness of things and the central role the gut plays... We'll often see mood disturbances. People can have a depressed mood, anxiety. We know from animal studies that animals infected with campylobacter jejuni, for example, which is a common foodborne illness, that they can display anxiety behavior after infection. And we see the same thing in humans with something called post-infectious irritable bowel syndrome, where after somebody has an infectious episode, let's say they travel and they get traveler's diarrhea, that the bowel symptoms sometimes don't go back to 100% normal. They have a little more gas, bloating, maybe the stool is loose, but the mood can also change. And there's a correlation there because of course... We talked about 70% of the immune system being in the gut. Well, 90% of the serotonin, what we call the feel-good hormone, is actually produced in the gut. So if you have a foodborne illness and it wipes out a lot of the healthy microbes and replaces them with some not-so-healthy microbes, that is going to affect your serotonin production. And that's going to affect your mood. And of course, serotonin is also a hormone that's involved in production of melatonin, the sleep hormone. So that can lead to sleep disturbances. So we see mood disturbances. We see autoimmune diseases. Even cancer can be a sign of poor gut health because of the central role. So, you know, while I'm proud to be a gastroenterologist and like to boast about the central role of the gut, I also don't want to overstate it. I don't want to give people the impression that every possible thing that goes wrong with you is because something's wrong with your microbiome. And with the popularization of the microbiome, sometimes I, I see that, right? So more commonly I'm pointing out to people, well, I think this is actually going on because of what's going on in your gut, but sometimes it's a reverse. And I'm like, you know what? I I know you have your hair is thinning and it's very upsetting to you, but I don't think that, you know, gut inflammation in your case is the primary reason. You know, I think it's it's something else. So it's, they're both sides of the coin, you know, both trying to remind people that the gut plays a role in all these other things, but not, you know, not suggesting that everything emanates from the gut.
1: Right. And that's, I think, a very key point is that... You know, the gut, the microbiome, gut health is a part of a whole person. And so it's a critical part and we need to make sure that that is healthy and balanced, but it's not necessarily the root cause of everything um, or the only cause of everything. It could be it part of the, of the foundational reason that somebody may be having an issue, but it's, fixing that's not going to be the only thing that you may need to do. Is that
2: accurate? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely accurate. One of the other things that is really sometimes challenging to convince people is that the biggest influencer as adults is what we eat a- and as children to to some extent, but because the microbiome in children, particularly in those early years is still quite tender, it's developing in children, avoiding some of these medications that are deleterious to the microbiome is, is really essential. Whereas in adults, there's a little more resilience to the microbiome. So the factor that is most changeable is what you eat. And for most people, the big change they need to make is thinking not what they should be eating, but what they should be feeding their gut bacteria. And I think sometimes, you know, people are very focused on the supplement and, you know, the magical food, where really it's the basics. It's the basics of eating more fibrous vegetables. So to your comment about the kids, I really focus with my patients about what they're missing rather than, you know, what they need to be subtracting. Like, should we be subtracting, you know, the frozen pizza and the margaritas? Absolutely. But (laughs) more important than subtracting that is adding in that essential fiber because our gut bacteria take that fiber, we call it, you know, indigestible fiber because it's not as well digested by us. And that's because it's not there for us. It's there to feed our gut bacteria. And they take that fiber and ferment it and produce these short-chain fatty acids. You know, we talked about these metabolites that guide the immune system. So short-chain fatty acids are one of those Essential metabolites that guide our immune system and help us have a balanced sort of Goldilocks immune response, right? Not too active, not too underactive. So it all starts with, again, what we're feeding our gut microbes.
1: Here is a quick word from our sponsor. We
0: take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued, loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios. Enjoy the show.
1: You talk about the importance of rewilding your gut and getting your gut back in balance. What what does that mean exactly?
2: It's it's so interesting that when we look out at the natural world, we see such parallels with what's going on in our environment. And what's going on inside in the microenvironment of our terrain, you know, our, our microbiome and all those, the critters that live there. So if we look externally, we see deforestation, we see overfishing, you know, we see that the animals are disappearing at a rate thousands of times faster than they should be. Climate change, I mean, I think regardless of what your political affiliations are, it's difficult to disagree with the fact that, you know, the earth is changing in terms of the fish in the sea, the trees, animals, etc., And the same thing is happening in our gut. So we have only about two thirds of the species diversity that somebody, for example, you know, a hunter gatherer from the Hadza tribe in Tanzania or somebody from the Amazon rainforest has, although of course, even that habitat is being threatened. And what we see is that gut diversity in terms of the diversity of our microbes is one of the most important markers of a healthy gut. Just like we need diversity out in the world for a healthy society, we need diversity within our gut for our gut to function properly because the microbes all do different things. So we when we end up with more of a sort of monoculture in our gut with, you know, a large amount of just a few species, it really affects a function. And of course, this is not just gut function, but bodily function. So gut diversity is a really important marker. And then, of course, there are particular species. So for example, we know, this is my favorite bacteria of all time called Fecalobacterium prausnitzii*, or F. prausnitzii* for short, we know that F. prosnitzii is the most prevalent gut bacteria in plant eaters and vegans, for example. And it is protective against cardiometabolic diseases like heart disease and stroke, against colon cancer, it turns out against COVID. That study I mentioned with um, the health of the microbiome being 92% predictive, people who had high levels of F. prosnitzii had much better outcomes. And we can contrast that, for example, Neha, with bacteria like Enterococcus faecalis, which is not a great bacteria to have a lot of. I mean, most of us have Enterococcus faecalis, but it's this overrepresentation. So for example, when you take a broad-spectrum antibiotic and it kills off a lot of your healthy bacteria, along with whatever pathogen you're trying to get rid of, it also creates a lot of room for organisms like Enterococcus faecalis that may be present in the low levels to now overgrow... And high levels of Enterococcus faecalis are one of the most important predictors of poor outcome with, from COVID. And they're also associated with post-op infections. It's a bacteria that can penetrate the gut lining, get into the bloodstream, make you really sick. So it's not about not having any Enterococcus faecalis and only having F. presnitziae. First of all, that's not possible. But it is the balance It is a balance. And if we even think of things like yeast, you know, so many of my patients are so petrified and, oh, I have yeast overgrowth and yeast is taking over my body. And I remind them that yeast are part of a healthy microbiome. We need yeast, for example, in the digestive tract. They're involved in digestion. But what we don't want to have is an overgrowth of yeast. And we have overgrowth of yeast when we have undergrowth of healthy species. So the way to approach the overgrowth is not to go on a search and destroy mission for the yeast, but it's really to rewild, repopulate, to make sure that we are increasing our population of healthy microbes so that we can have a balanced microbiome. This is fascinating.
1: So would it be accurate to say that it's possible to achieve a more diverse microbiome and a healthier gut through diet change?
2: Oh, it's 100% accurate, Neha. And I'll tell you, unlike our genes, which are more static, of course, as you know, genes are changing too, but our genes are harder to influence. Our microbiome is changing fast. There was a fascinating study published in Nature several years ago in 2014, and it was a study done from Harvard where they took nine volunteers and they put them first on essentially an Atkins-type diet, right? So basically all meat, cheese, pork rinds, and prosciutto for snack. And they looked at their microbiome before, during, and after. Then they rested those same nine volunteers for about a week, and they put them on a plant-based diet. Jasmine rice, lentils, mango, avocado. They looked at the microbiome before, during, and after. And what they found was that within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, when they switched to the plant-based diet, the microbiome started to shift pretty dramatically. One of the biggest shifts was that the bilophilia, the bile-loving bacteria that are necessary to digest when you're eating a lot of meat and animal protein and fat started to drop. And bilophilia don't just help us break down animal protein, they're also associated with inflammation, diarrheal disease, et cetera. So you don't wanna have high levels of those kinds of bacteria, but you will if you're eating an Atkins diet. What was really fascinating, Neha, is not just the microbial changes, how fast they were, but the genes started to change too. So based on the changes in the microbial community with a shift to a high-fiber diet, we saw that different genes were turned on and off. So to me, this is honestly like the biggest, most optimistic message in medicine is that you literally, within about a day and a half, can change physically and physiologically and genetically what is going on in your body by shifting your diet? And, you know, if that's not powerful medicine, I don't know what is.
1: Wow. That is that is really an optimistic message. And what do you say about prebiotic and probiotic foods and then also supplements? How do you kind of factor that into your advice?
2: So prebiotic is talking about food to feed our gut bacteria. So when we talk about prebiotics, we're typically talking about high fiber foods and something we call MACS, MACS microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So that would be things like beans and oats and, you know, asparagus and celery and all that very fibrous food. So that's a prebiotic. A probiotic By definition, I mean, the World Health Organization of a probiotic is uh, live bacteria that when ingested confer an advantage to the host. And it's the second part of that definition, confer an advantage to the host, where there's a big question mark, right? Because there's lots of pills and potions you can take, but as to whether they confer an advantage to you, the host, there's a big question mark. So when we talk about a probiotic, we're typically talking about a product that's commercially available containing live bacteria, but probiotic can also mean your inherent, you know, intrinsic gut bacteria too. And then a postbiotic, we're talking about the metabolites of gut bacteria like the short chain fatty acids I talked about. And to further confuse it, symbiotics, (laughs) which is a combination of pre and pro, (laughs) but we, we won't talk about symbiotics here. But if you think, for example, about, you know, I am all about food as medicine. And so spend a lot of time talking about, you know, how should we be feeding our gut bacteria and really, on processed fiber from fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, that's that's always best. And so by that I mean like a bowl of lentils is always going to be better than lentil chips. because once you start processing the food and it's coming out of the factory instead of from the farm, it's going to be a much less nutritionally and microbially robust.
1: So the closer it is to a whole food to what it originally looked like, the better.
2: Absolutely, the better. And so, you know, pretty simple. Like, you know, and when we think about food from the ground, I really don't discriminate. You know, if you want to eat a white potato, eat a white potato. I mean, does a sweet potato have more fiber in it and beta carotene and other things? Sure. You know, if you if you go off in search of the more deeply pigmented foods, you're typically going to get uh, more nutritionally rich food. But a white potato, just don't take the white potato and then, you know, fry it in a pan full of oil. But you know, if you want to have a baked potato or something, fine. So I really encourage my patients to follow what I call this rule I made up, called the one-two-three rule, which is one vegetable at breakfast, two at lunch, three with dinner. And I've modified it since that American Gut Project study came out because I said it has to be six different vegetables. It can't be. I had some spinach with my eggs in the morning, and then I had a spinach salad, and then I had some sautéed spinach with dinner. So six different vegetables a day. Because if you do that even five days a week, you're going to get to 30 plant foods for the week.
1: So, you know, sometimes we tell our kids, don't go play in the dirt and get everything dirty. But should we be telling them to go
2: play in the dirt? We absolutely should be telling them to go get dirty because think about it. We first we get that first inoculation of microbes if we're lucky enough to be born, not via C-section, right? As we're coming through the birth canal and we swallow a mouthful of our mom's microbes and that those are the founding species of bifidobacteria that make up our burgeoning microbiome army. And then after that, we get our microbes really from food and from exposure to our environment. So, like, if you think of babies on the ground and putting everything in their mouth and so on, that's an important part of them acquiring more microbes. And if you see, it's the same thing in nature. If you see baby animals, you know, they're interacting with their environment. Now, unfortunately, our environment is more sterile than most baby animals, but... <clears throat> Some baby animals, um, baby elephants and other animals, even eat the stool of adults to help cultivate their microbiome. And it's, it's normal, and it's what they're supposed to do. You know, they're kind of doing their own stool transplant as babies. Not something I recommend for, uh, for humans, uh, to be clear. But the point is that we want the kids out in the playground. We want them, you know, dirt, exposure to soil microbes. We know that in addition to the microbes, there are factors in the open air. There's something called the open air factor. And if we look back 100 years at the Spanish flu epidemic, 1914 to 18, we see that soldiers who recuperated outside in the open air had a much lower mortality than ones who were inside a hospital with recirculated air. And there's something germicidal, there's something that can actually kill harmful germs in open air. Of course, there's sunshine for vitamin D2, but even beyond the sunshine, there are factors. We know this concept of forest bathing, which has become very popular here, and we think probably originated in Japan, some fascinating studies showing that when they send people out for a lunch break to the forest to walk around in the woods, they come back with incredibly improved markers like their blood pressure is down, they report less stress, et cetera. So this idea of forest bathing, the open air factor, the exposure to soil microbes, all really key And all things that, along with our standard American diet, which is also making us sick, our super sanitized lifestyle, where we're inside all the time in these very clean environments, is also really a big threat to the health of our microbiome. Here
1: is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios. Enjoy the show.
1: And our health. Hmm. So we, when is it time to see a doctor? When is it that, you know, we've tried to shift things for our gut health, we've changed our diet, we're exercising. What are some of the things that would suggest, you know what, I, I really need to see a doctor for my gut health?
2: It's different for everyone, Neha. You know, everybody has a different tolerance, for example, for pain, but there are some really basic red flags. So one of the ones I like to tell people is if there's blood coming out of any orifice, there needs to be a doctor involved, you know. So if you're having blood in your stool, um, even if it's just a one time, that's something that should prompt a conversation with your doctor. And fortunately, most of the times when people have occasional blood in their stool or on their toilet paper, it's something benign, like a hemorrhoid or an anal fissure. But of course, it can be a sign of something more worrisome, like colon cancer or colitis, inflammation in the colon. So that should always prompt a conversation. If you have significant weight loss, and particularly if you're somebody whose weight has been very steady, maybe you're even somebody who's had difficulty losing weight, and now you find you're losing weight without an, uh, an explanation based on, you know, a change in your eating habits, that should definitely prompt a visit, uh, a change in abdominal girth. So when we think about bloating, we think about something that ebbs and flows, right? So you wake up in the morning, belly's pretty flat, and then as the day goes on and you eat and digest food and stuff gets fermented, you tend to get more bloated. So that would be a fairly normal rhythm. But if you find that all of a sudden your waist size has increased, you know, a few inches and it's not changing... That increased abdominal girth could be a sign of more worrisome things like fluid in the abdomen, something we call ascites that we can see with inflammation of the liver, we can see with different kinds of cancer, ovarian cancer. Of course, it can sometimes just be belly fat, as we know, where you've gained weight and that's where you've gained the weight. But if you feel, again, like there's this increase in girth without a good explanation, that's something that should cause you to seek medical attention even being extremely fatigued, because fatigue can be a sign of anemia. And anemia can be a sign of blood loss through the GI tract or poor absorption of iron. And that can be something as simple as, you know, you have an ulcer that's bleeding, or it could be something a little more complex, like you have celiac disease, an autoimmune disease that's an allergy to gluten, a protein found in wheat, rye, and barley. And, Seal egg disease can also cause anemia because it causes flattening of the little villi in the small intestine that normally absorb iron, and it means iron isn't absorbed well. And you become iron deficient and you can become fatigued. So, again, that can be that kind of fairly complex interaction that you wouldn't necessarily put together. You might just think, oh, I'm tired. I need to get more sleep. and you know, by all means, get more sleep. But if you find that this is really something out of the ordinary without a good explanation, gas, bloating, if you're having bad heartburn symptoms, these are all things that should prompt a visit.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Robin, I have asked you so many, so many questions. Is there anything that I missed
2: I think the thing that I'm most excited about right now, and maybe it's because I have a new book coming out in the fall, The Antiviral Gut. And so I've been thinking so much about the gut, not as an organ of digestion, but as an immune organ. In in this new world that we find ourselves living in, not just this pandemic, but past ones and future ones, the role, the central role that the gut plays in keeping us safe from infection in in really modulating our immune system is astounding, even to me as a gastroenterologist who's already impressed with the gut. And so what I want to remind people is that these basic things, you know, it's not a fancy supplement or a magic food. It's these basic things. Like, if you do nothing else for the day, try and eat some vegetables. You know, these things are really central and they make a huge difference. So that's a point that I want to emphasize the most is Don't worry about, you know, the ice cream sundae and the pizza you ate and so on. I mean, yes, try and eat less of that, but I really want to focus on those things. And so for most people, I'll say, you know, just try and eat a salad a day or a green smoothie a day if you can and encourage your kids, add a few little broccoli florets to their mac and cheese. You know, it's so important and it's not just important for gut health, it's important for immune health, it's important for brain health.
1: I love that. That is such an important and optimistic prescription. So I thank you so much for your time. This was really so informative.
2: Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in.